Well, let me welcome each and every one of you to our Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur service. Yom Kippur is one of the most interesting and unique days in the biblical calendar. Before I give away the juicy parts, let me ask you this. Think back to the seven Moedim, the appointed times of God in Leviticus chapter 23. Which one of them is called Yom HaBikarim? First fruits. But that's not the only one that's called Yom HaBikarim. Also the Feast of Weeks. First fruits is the first fruits of the barley harvest. And the Feast of Weeks is first fruits of the wheat harvest. By the same token, for 49 years in a row, the Day of Atonement is about the completion of the 40-day period called Teshuvah or Repentance. The day that God would judge Israel and see whether he would accept the blood to cover over their sins for another year. But the 50th year is called what? Called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, the Day of Atonement does that, but it does something more. First, I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. The year 5784 started at the Feast of Trumpets 10 days ago. But if this year happens to be the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee did not start 10 days ago. The year of Jubilee starts today. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 40. People go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Well, think of Passover. The 14th day of Nisan begins at sundown as the sun goes down on the 13th. But Passover itself starts at what? 3 p.m. So the day started, but the appointed time did not start at sundown. Are you in Ezekiel chapter 40? Look at verse 1. Ezekiel chapter 40 beginning of verse 1 it says, In the 25th year of our captivity at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month. The Hebrew for the beginning of the year it reads Barosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, that's normally what we call the first day of Tishri. But in a year of Jubilee, which it is here in Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 1, Rosh Hashanah, it says, is on the 10th day of the month. What's the 10th day of Tishri? That's Yom Kippur. So while the year 5784 started 10 days ago, if this is a year of Jubilee, and I can't say if it is or isn't, then the year of Jubilee begins today. There's something more significant that you need to know if this is a year of Jubilee. And that is to turn to Leviticus chapter 25. You know that I believe with all my heart that the rapture comes at Yom Teruah. And when... The Feast of Trumpets is over. People go, oh, we have to wait a whole nother year. And I say, what? Well, let's hang on. Yeah. 
Let's hang on and see if this is your jubilee. Why do I say that? Is it just because I refuse to give up? Well, maybe. <laughs> but there's more to it. Look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 9. Well, back up to verse 8 for context. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. So how many is that? Seven Sabbaths of years is 49 years. Seven times seven years. See, God can multiply two. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. He can multiply and add. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. Makes perfect sense. Only that's not what the Hebrew says. Let's look at the Hebrew. Hmm. Verse 9 says, Veha avarta which is a he-feel verb from the verb to cross over, says, and you shall cause to cross over. The next two words are shofar teruah, the trumpet of the teruah, as in yom teruah, which was ten days ago, but in the year of jubilee, it gets deferred by ten days. I understand. In the English, you'd never see that, but the Hebrew is very clear. So the trumpet of the Jubilee will cause us to cross over on the tenth day of the seventh month. So let us keep that in mind as we start our study of the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. First thing I want you to do is we always do in your notes is take down some of the names, themes, and idioms, not idiots, but idioms of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement and why are they called those things. The first name is Yom Kippur, Y-O-M space K-I-P-P-U-R. Or if you're British, you say Yom Kippur. <clears throat> but I think Kippur's a fish, so that's not what this holiday is about at all. <laughs> Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement, but do you know what atonement means? The word Kippurah is a covering, a covering over. Remember the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can't take away sin. So what it did was, when they spread the blood upon the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, God would look down and see the blood rather than the sin. And therefore, he would defer judgment. Defer judgment till when? Defer judgment until Messiah would come, whom Paul, who, let's see, let's go back to John. We'll start with John. Who John called what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't just cover it over. In Messiah, we have forgiveness of sin. That's something that didn't come through the shedding of animal blood. It was just a covering over. So from Leviticus chapter 23, we call this day the Day of Atonement. And we'll get to Leviticus 23 in a minute. First, some more names, themes, and idioms. The next one is called face-to-face. -face. It's called face-to-face -face because that was the only day of the year that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and see God face-to-face, -face except what he had to do first had to put in the incense so that the incense cloud was so thick he couldn't actually look upon the face of God. But it was the only day the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. What if the high priest had, say, two sons who decided to do it when they wanted to do it? Maybe they had to do it. Yeah, 
Nadab and Abihu became. They be dead. They be dead, yeah. They be dead. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul makes a reference to the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then, that is when we stand in heaven, face to face with God, says, but then, face to face. So like the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and stand in God's presence, when we come to the day of the Lord and stand before the Lord, we will be able to be in his presence and to look upon his face. And the day of atonement teaches that time that we will be able to cross through the veil and stand in God's presence with nothing separating us. Another term is the day or the great day. Let's start first in the book of Jude. Some of these are easier to see than others, but if you ask me what chapter of Jude, you're not there yet. It's the page or two before Revelation. Jude chapter 1, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. You know what that means. Back in Genesis chapter 6, the fallen angels came down and had relations with human women and produced the Nephilim. God destroyed all those people in the flood. But then how do we have Goliath for David to fight? Because there were some angels who even after the flood and after God said, Thou shalt not ever, said, Yes, we will. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness. So they have been chained for thousands of years now. And when they're released, you think they're going to be a little unhappy? Yeah, they're going to be a little unhappy. But they're under in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day talking about the day of the great white throne judgment which will occur at the day of atonement very far off into the future and Revelation chapter 6 verse 17 one of the big themes of the day of atonement is judgment will you be atoned for or will you fall under God's judgment Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. <clears throat> what day does the tribulation period begin on? <clears throat> Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And verse 17 refers to that when it says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Because in chapter 6, verse 1, God opens the first seal through Messiah. And then comes the tribulation period, and people just are not able to withstand it if they are not saved. In Revelation 6.14, as the tribulation period unfolds, we come across another reference to the 
Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. What was that, Revelation? Revelation 16, verse 14. Revelation 16, 14, we've come seven years later, seven years of the tribulation period, seven years of the wrath of God being poured out. And it ends when Messiah returns in Revelation 19, 11 for the battle of Armageddon, but here's the first reference to Armageddon. Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons, that is, they came out of the mouth of thee, what? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. That great day being the day of atonement. When all those who are not saved, all those who thumb their nose at God through the whole seven year tribulation period will die. Another term for this day is the fast. You know, in Biblical Hebrew, there's a difference between a fast and the fast, right? How many fasts did God command? Just one. That's why it's called the fast. The other fast, like the fast of Gedalia and the fast of Tisha B'Av, those were added by man. God didn't command those, but this one he does. Let's go to Acts chapter 27. And before we're done today, we're going to talk about how did God declare it a fast day? Acts chapter 27, verse 9. Acts chapter 27, verse 9. <clears throat> now when much time had been spent... And sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. That's the fast of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. What that means is the Mediterranean Sea gets very dangerous with storms and great swells when we come to the winter time. And to Paul, the marking of the Day of Atonement was the end of the summer and now we're heading into fall and winter and traveling is going to be quite difficult. Another term for the day is called the Shofar Hagadol, or in English, the Great Shofar. It's in Matthew chapter 24. Messiah tells us that that's associated with his return for the Battle of Armageddon. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, starting verse 39. The, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture and the resurrection, but the tribulation period doesn't start until the day of atonement. And it ends on a day of atonement. How do we know? Because God tells us the length in years in months and in days. So we know it ends on the day it begins. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days. What's that mean? Tribulation periods just come to an end. 
The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. That's from Joel chapter 2. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's Daniel chapter 7. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. What is that sign? Messiah returns on a white horse in Revelation 19, 11 and following. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Give me a verse. Zechariah 12.10 Then they shall look upon me whom they pierced and mourn for him as they mourn for his only son. Now we'll see the son of man. Daniel chapter 7 refers to Messiah repeatedly as the son of man. Coming on the clouds of heaven that's returning with the believers with power and great glory. Just think of Matthew chapter 17 the Mount of Transfiguration. He will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. That's the shofar Hagadol, Announcing Messiah's return and the regathering of Israel back to the land. The regathering of Isaiah 11.11. And he will gather together his elect from the four winds. That's from the four points of the compass. If you read Isaiah 11.11, it specifies from the north, south, east, and west. From one end of heaven to the other. There's one more name that we will not find in the scripture. But we must go to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After these things I looked. After what things? After the church age of Revelation 2 and 3. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. All the Jewish people listening to John speak would have said, It's what day? Yom Teruah. Rosh Hashanah. The day of the awakening trumpet blast. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, a Teruah speaking with me, saying, Come up here. I'll show you things which must take place after this. The Jewish teaching is that that door remains open in heaven until Yom Kippur. Because if you remember, during the seven-year tribulation period, how many people get saved? Countless multitudes. That's in Revelation chapter 7. So when that door closes, that means the time for salvation is over. When Messiah returns in Revelation 19.11, what happens to all the unsaved? They die. That door is closed. That's called, if you want to put in your notes, Neela, N-E-I-L-A-H, Neela, which means the closing of the gates. It's at the very end of Yom Kippur. That great trumpet sounds at the very end. Neela, N-E-I-L-A-H. Of course, it's transliterated from Hebrew, and transliteration means put whatever letters make you say Neela. So, if you spelled it N-E-A-L-E-A-H, nobody could say you're wrong, just, well, uninformed. <laughs> okay. It is the holiest day of the year. Why do I say that? Well, first, it's the only day of the year that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And could he just get up that morning and waltz in? Oh no. In Leviticus chapter 16, we will look at an elaborate ceremony he had to do before he could go in there. What's one of the first things he has to do? 
even before he sacrifices the bull. Bathe. That immersion, that tevi law, is to show a repentance, that he has repented and he's now willing to face God as a new creature. Then he has to sacrifice the bull because what did Aaron do at Mount Sinai? He threw the gold in and that calf just popped right out and God didn't believe that story either. <laughs> so that's why the priesthood always must offer a bull for themselves before they offer a sacrifice for anybody else. Okay. And it's the only day that the high priest said God's name aloud. And he did it in a whisper in the Holy of Holies. While he was doing that, everyone bowed outside with their faces to the ground. And they said this, repeat after me. Baruch, shame, kavod, malchuto, le'olam, va'ed. What's that mean? <laughs> yes, we do, don't we? So blessed is his holy name. And his kingdom is forever and ever. And it's the only fast among the Moedim, the appointed times, Leviticus 23. But Holocaust says that food or water for health reasons is required. The Bible doesn't say that, so you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. But the purpose of the fast is not to kill you. We're going to talk about what the purpose of the fast is and why it's so important to God. All right, let's get started now. Let's turn to the book of Psalms, where I always start on one of these Moedim. Because I don't want anyone ever to forget it. Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. There are theologians throughout the world pulling out their hair. Why are believers celebrating or keeping the Day of Atonement? Don't they know those are Jewish things? Well, no, I don't know that. It's for all people. But Psalm 40, verse 7, is very key to my understanding of the scriptures. Let me do it for the King James. Lo, I said, then I said, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Meaning this Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 is about the redemption of fallen mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, Yeshua. How we who cannot save ourselves Amen. must rely upon our Messiah Yeshua who was perfectly sinless. And in the Old Testament, God gave the sacrifice of the animals as a picture of the sinless dying in place of the sinful. And that's what Messiah did. He took my sins and yours, if you're a believer in him, and took those sins upon him. And paid the price where God said the wages of sin is death. If God had said the wages of sin is your death, we'd all have been in deep trouble. If he said the wages of sin is death, that allows Messiah to die in our place. But all of this scripture is about Messiah. And now let's jump, as you might already think ahead, to 1 Thessalonians. Because yes, that's where I always go next. 
Because 1 Thessalonians explains why it's important to understand those appointed times in Leviticus 23. They teach the first coming of Messiah and they teach the second coming of Messiah. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18, the Apostle Paul describes the rapture and the resurrection and ends by saying, therefore comfort one another with these words. The very next words out of his mouth begin with but. Did we change topics? No, we have not. But concerning the times and the seasons, the times and the seasons are those appointed times of the Lord and how they teach his first coming and his second. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, we have no need that I should write to you. Why? Many theologians say, well, of course, because it's irrelevant to the church. But that's not it. Because they're keeping them year in and year out. Who, kept, who taught them to keep the feasts and festivals? Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Keep a finger in 1 Thessalonians. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You want to see a preacher get red faced? Take him to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven. Leaven's a picture of sin. That means repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn back to God and walk in righteousness. That you may be a new lump. Well, some of us are more lumpy than others, but that's beside the point. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Messiah, our Passover, the word Passover there, Pesach, refers to the lamb that was slain, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because Messiah was sacrificed for whom? For us. Let us keep the feast. Which feast? Passover. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a Gentile church. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, you know that you are Gentiles. But Paul says, he died for us, therefore we're going to keep the Passover. And all 1 Corinthians is about, yeah, they're keeping it, but they're not keeping it quite right. And Paul's going to fix their theology. Yes, sir. When I said that, therefore ties it back to Passover. The therefore ties it back to Passover. Next to Colossians two, where it says all the feasts and festivals are shadows, but they all point to Messiah. It connects to Colossians chapter two, verses fifteen and sixteen, which says all of the feasts and festivals are shadows, meaning pictures, but the substance is a Messiah. They all point to Messiah, every one of them. What does Passover point to? His death, unleavened bread, his burial, first fruits. His resurrection, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Feast of Trumpets, Rapture and Resurrection, Day of Atonement, His return for Armageddon, Feast of Tabernacles, Establishment of His Kingdom here on earth. They all point to Messiah. They're all about Him. And when we get to Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to see that they're not Jewish feasts. They're not Israeli feasts. But I digress. We're back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. How many of you heard that before? You talk about the coming kingdom and everybody goes, well, it's like a thief in the night. Nobody knows when. Well, let's notice the difference between verse 3 and verse 4. For when they say, not you, for when they say peace and safety, 
Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. That's the tribulation period. They've been using that analogy of labor pains all through the Old Testament. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. Why is one group in darkness and the other not? One's keeping the feast and understands the appointed times and how they point to Messiah's first and second coming. The other has no clue. If you know the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23, you will not be caught off guard when the Lord comes. How many of you are looking for his coming? Do you see the signs all around you? Yes, you do. Okay, let's go back to Leviticus 23 and let me prove what I say. Make me prove everything I say except my name. I can't prove that. Wait a minute, I do have my driver's license with me. Okay. Leviticus 23 verse 1. Most of you have been through this with me many, many times, but some of you have not. So let's break it down. Chapter 23 verse 1 begins, and that word and doesn't mean anything. Biblical Hebrew just throws in an and at the start of almost every verse. Because if you remember, the original Torah scroll wasn't divided into chapters and verses. It wasn't even divided into words. It was just a constant stream of letters. Hmm. Wouldn't that have been fun to read? So verse 1 says, And the Lord, see how the word Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh The name that God says in Exodus 3.15 is to be concealed. So that name was spoken only by the high priest in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur in a whisper. That's why, because of Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But that's the Lord that is our Messiah, Yeshua. Why does everybody call him the Lord Jesus without thinking that the word Lord is referring back to the Tetragrammaton? Because that's who he is. Because that's exactly right. Lord Jesus is using Lord as an adjective, but it's not. It's a noun. It's two separate nouns. Okay. The Lord spoke to Moses. Y'all remember him, right? You've seen the movie Ten Commandments? He was the old guy. Saying, that word saying means what follows is a quote. These words came out of the very lips of the Lord. Speak. Is that a suggestion? No, that's a commandment. Speak to the children of Israel. He didn't say speak to Israel. He said speak to the children of Israel. The children of Israel is a broader term. When Israel came out of Egypt, did they come out alone or with a great mixed multitude? Great. That great mixed multitude of Gentiles that have been grafted in, the whole group is referred to collectively as the children of Israel. Just as, keep a finger here, and go to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Paul uses the same kind of terminology in Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 3, once you get there, We'll, we'll do verses 26 to 29. <clears throat> For you all are sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Everybody realize that, right? For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning Jew or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. And Paul explains this more in Ephesians chapter 2. 
There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul says, we are all the children of Abraham. Whether you are born Jewish or Gentile, if you've been saved by faith, you are the children of Abraham. By the same token, they're using that same kind of language here in Leviticus 23. So speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord. You see that phrase? It's wrong. The word feast there would be chagim if it was feast, but it's moedim. So it's the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, mikra kodesh. A holy thing is something set apart to God, and a convocation is a gathering together to rehearse. So by keeping these appointed times of the Lord, they are rehearsing the first coming of Messiah 1,500 years before he comes, and the second coming of Messiah 3,500 years before he comes again. But he says, these are my, again, it's not feasts, it's my appointed times. So he called them in verse 2, the appointments of the Lord and then he reiterates, these are my appointed times. And it means appointments that the Lord will keep with mankind through the Messiah Yeshua. Verse 3 says, six days shall work be done. That's actually not right. It's six days may work be done. You don't have to work six days a week. If you only work five days a week, don't think you're sinning. Some people do. Okay. But the seventh day. In biblical Hebrew, what's in between a seventh day and the seventh day? A seventh, you could just pick any day, count six, and the seventh one's the seventh one. When he says the seventh day, it refers back to Genesis chapter 2. So keep a finger here and go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested. That word rested in Hebrew is Shabbat. That's the first time Shabbat appears, is in chapter 2. Rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. That's the day that he rested and sanctified it, because in it he rested. There that is that word Shabbat again. It's the verb from which the noun Sabbath comes. From all his work which God had created and made. But is this the first reference to the appointed times in the Bible? It's not. Go back to Genesis 1 verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. That's the moon and the sun. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That word seasons isn't seasons. The word season in Hebrew is zaman, Z-E-M-A-N. This is moedim. So God created the sun and the moon, put them in the heavens before man was created. So that we would know when these appointed times would be. How many Jews were in the world? None. There weren't any people at all. Okay, back to Leviticus chapter 23. Let's go down to verse 26, which is about the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 26. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Also the tenth day of the seventh month, that's today, shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation. What does that mean? It's a gathering together to rehearse something that's set apart to God. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day. For the other high Sabbath, it says no servile work. This one says no work at all. For it's the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute. What's that next word? I can't read it. Forever. Throughout your generation in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So three times God said you shall afflict your souls. Not once did he say you shall fast. So how do we know that the phrase you shall afflict your souls means you shall fast? Well let's start with Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58 in verse 3. I know that you are all familiar with the term Hebrew parallelism. What does that mean? It means stating the same concept with different words to make sure we all understand the concept. In Isaiah chapter 58 verse 3 it says... Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? That's Hebrew parallelism. So how does Isaiah define afflicting their souls? Fasting. Verse 3 goes on to say, In fact, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. In other words, it's what? It's just a show. How does God feel about just shows of religion with no substance? Calls you a hypocrite. Same chapter, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 5. Since that was the people talking, here's God speaking now. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? So how does God say you afflict your soul? By fasting. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and spread out sackcloth and ashes, which means what? Repentance. The fast is about repentance. Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Hmm. And then in the same chapter, in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10, If God says something once is important, twice it's really important. What if he goes on more than that? He wants us to really listen, huh? Isaiah 58 verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Why is the afflicted soul hungry? 
because they're fasting. Right. Okay. Historically, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16. What did the high priest have to do before going into the Holy of Holies? It's all pictures, every bit of it. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. Everybody ready? Now, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. What if Aaron had just marched into the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted to? Yeah, we'd be talking about somebody else being a high priest. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place. It's not holy place. It's holy of holies. Inside the veil. The veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Before the mercy seat. What was the only thing in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant covered by the mercy seat. That mercy seat, that's not what the Hebrew calls it. The Hebrew is called the Keeperah, the atonement, the covering, which is on the ark lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, yet God has not forgotten that golden calf, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. What is linen the picture of? That white linen. Is purity is also burial cloth. Righteousness. Yeah. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. What you gotta know, just close your eyes and picture Aaron. He's wearing everything that is snowy white. He's about to carry blood. What happens if you get blood on snowy white material? Yeah, you don't just throw it in a washing machine. Right. So that's important. These are holy garments. What does holy mean? Set aside unto God. Therefore he shall wash his body in water. There's the tevilah or the mikvah. And put them on. It doesn't go into great detail about what that means because it assumes we know that he has repented of his sins and now he's going through the mikvah to show that he is a new creation, a new person clean unto God. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a burnt offering. I'm glad they added of the goats. Yeah, he's not going to take two, uh, you know. Okay, never mind, bad joke. <laughs> and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. That is for the golden calf. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord. Before the Lord means on the east side of the tabernacle. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting. What is the Hebrew behind tabernacle of meeting? Do you know? Ohel Moed. Ohel means tent. Moed are the appointed times. But here they just call it in English the tabernacle of meeting. 
Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Is he shooting dice? No. There's a box with a lid. And he puts his hands in without looking. The lid is closed over his hands. And inside there are two golden lots. One says La Adonai for the Lord. The other says La Azazel for the scapegoat. And he grabs one in each hand. You want to know something cool? Until Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the lot for the Lord, La Adonai, always came up in the right hand. For the 40 years after Messiah, until the temple was destroyed, it never came up in the right hand. Hmm. And that's written for us by non-believers, so they're not trying to prove anything. La Adonai. La Adonai means for the Lord or to the Lord. Lam it is two or four. And La Azazel to the scapegoat. Yep, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Atonement means to cover over. That sin of the golden calf is not taken away until Messiah sheds his blood, but is covered over and God defers the judgment. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 8, then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, La'adonai, the other lot for the scapegoat, La'azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat in which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. That one's going to die. But the goat in which the lot fell to, the, to be the scapegoat, he shall be presented alive before the Lord. That is actually live standing there before the east side of the tabernacle meeting. To make atonement upon it. They're going to put the sins of Israel symbolically upon that goat's head. The innocent taking on the sins of the guilty. And to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So it was led off into the wilderness to a particular place. And the Jewish sages tell us that they would remove the shiny colored cloth, which is a blood colored cloth, from around the neck of that goat and hang it on a tree and push the goat off the cliff. And as it tumbled down into the wilderness, Wilderness being considered, in Jewish thought, the place of demons. And it would be torn apart on the sharp rocks. That cloth would turn snowy white. To indicate that God had granted atonement. For the 40 years from the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah until the temple fell in 70 common era, that cloth never turned white. It always had before. These are just two of the things they list in the Talmud is, well, you know, this is kind of strange. You and I know what it means. The right hand, the Azazel. And there's one of the seven lamps on the menorah that was to always be lit, the Ner Tamid. It was never allowed to go out. It would go out every night. For the 40 years, they couldn't keep it lit no matter what they did. And the fourth thing was the gates that had to be closed at night would open by themselves every night as if to invite the invaders in to destroy it. And they couldn't keep it closed no matter what they did. Okay, verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. And shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. 
This is from the fire which consumed the sacrifices that he's just made. Put him in a censer. It says, and with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So he would put those handfuls of sweet incense on that fire of sacrifice and put it inside the veil. He doesn't go in and look around. He just sets it in and lets the smoke fill the Holy of Holies. What happens if he looks directly on the face of God? Yeah, he'd be dead. So every one of these steps is terribly important. So for at least a week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest practiced all this practically day and night. Who can help him do it? Do you remember? No one. He's got to do it by himself. Verse 12, he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the testimony lest he die. That's not a veiled threat. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Why not five times? Why not nine times? What's the significance of seven? How long did Messiah say? From the beginning of creation to the new heavens and the new earth. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's never been any other salvation. Let's see Verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. What it's doing is it's pictorially covering over the sin so that when God looks down on it, he sees the blood and not the sin. It says, for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle and meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall no man be in the tabernacle and meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. In other words, what? Can have no help. No one can touch him. What he's required to cry out as he's carrying the blood into the holy place is what? Do not touch me. Do not nagabi, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Turn to the book of John, chapter 20. Yes, this whole ceremony is just symbolic of what Messiah would do at his death, burial, and resurrection. While you're turning there, just picture Messiah. And how he loved everybody. He allowed women to wash his feet with their tears and and dry them with their hair, which I would find creepy, but he, he allowed it. But as he's just arisen from the tomb, Mary wants to go and hug him. What does he say in John chapter 20, verse 17? Yeshua said to her, John chapter 20, thank you, verse 17. Yeshua said to her, do not cling to me. That's that same, do not nag me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. He is taking the blood that he shed for us on Calvary's tree up to heaven to put it on the mercy seat in heaven. 
And how can we help him save us? We cannot. Therefore, just like on Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, he says, do not nag me, do not touch me, do not grab me. In other words, you can't help me. I've got to do this by myself. Verse 17 of Leviticus 16. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. What if someone were to touch him on the way in? Would invalidate the sacrifice. No, that's true. Would he have to go back and redo it all over again? You have to go back and do it all over again. Verse 18, you shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it. It means to set it apart, to make it holy. From the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle and meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. See, it's kind of repetitive within chapter 16. They haven't sent the scapegoat out yet. They're just describing that in more detail. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions. Laying the hands on the goat is called smicha. And it's to, um, what's the best way to put it? Symbolically transfer. It's to symbolically transfer, but laying on of the hands is to indicate that this is in your place. To make them in their place. And when he confesses all the sins of the children of Israel, they go upon the innocent goat. Don't think the goat's a bad goat. They didn't pick a goat because he was mean and butted people and things. It's just an innocent goat. Putting them on the head of the goat shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Why the wilderness? In Jewish thought, the wilderness is the habitat of demons. Where did the sins originate? With Satan. He's sending the sins back to the one from which they came. Verse 22, the goat shall bear in itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. That's a desert. He shall release the goat in the wilderness. Of course, it's torn apart as it travels down the rocks. Um, and they say release like he just says, okay, I'm taking a rope off, go where you want. But nah, go get the push. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle and meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place. He has been splattered by the blood. The blood pictures sin. So that righteousness with which he was covered before is now splattered with blood indicative of sin. So he again, after having confessed the sins and repented of it, he will go and immerse himself in the water. The tevilah, the mikvah, today we call it baptism. Put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and a burnt offering to people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Does it again. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he will release the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. He carried on the goat the sins of the people. Therefore he must symbolically repent and be cleansed. Afterward he may come into the camp. Go down to verse 29. 
Yes, Bill. Uh, is talking about blood representing sin when David was not allowed to build the temple because he was, he was a man of, of blood. blood. And so, and that's <clears throat> not just war, but for the sins that he committed as well. No, well, perhaps, but it's mostly because he's a man of war. Okay. Man of war. Who got to build the temple? His son Solomon. Solomon. What is Solomon in Hebrew? His Shlomo, his peace. It said Solomon was a man of peace. Um, okay. Warfare and the shedding of blood in warfare is because of sin. So because David was stained with the sin um, pictures, God didn't allow him to build it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Okay, let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. We looked a little bit about at the Hebrew of Leviticus chapter 25 at the beginning, but let's read verses 1 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, what's saying? Quote, speak to the children of Israel. That's the, the nation of Israel and the mixed multitude grafted in. Just picture in your mind, was there a lamb side of the camp and a ham side of the camp? There was not. There was just the four camps around the tabernacle, north, south, east, and west. And they're called by the names of the 12 tribes. So where were the mixed multitude? They were grafted in. Which is a picture of Romans chapter 11 where the Gentile believer gets grafted into Israel. So verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of what? Solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Israel failed to do that. 70 times. How long were they in captivity in Babylon? 70 times. God specifically says so that the land could catch up on the rest that they had denied it. Verse 5. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of your untended vine for it's a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. And people go, wait a minute, that's inconsistent. No, it's not. What grows of itself, anyone could go and pick some for a meal. They couldn't harvest it and put it in the barns, but anybody could go gather what they needed to eat. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger, ding, 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 what's the ger hasha'ar? The Gentile who wants to worship the true and living God is treated just the same as anyone born in the land. The one who dwells with you. That's the ger hasha'ar. Hasha'ar means of the gate. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So even the animals got to eat from what grew by itself. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. There's where we get the 49 years. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. You shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says the shofar of the teruah. 
to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. That trumpet normally sounds on the first day of the month. It says, On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the fiftieth year. What's it mean, consecrate? Make it holy. Set it apart unto God. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. So if you had sold yourself as a slave because you were poor in the year of Jubilee, you got set free. All debts were forgiven. Whatever you owed to anybody was forgiven. All land was returned to its original owners. It says it shall be a Jubilee for you. If you start counting the 50 years from creation, go back to Genesis chapter 6, and let me show you something cool. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God is not happy with mankind, right? We have become so sinful that every thought of every day is just evil and wicked. Verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Let me talk about a possible sowed. If that 120 years could also refer to 120 years of Jubilee. What's 120 times 50? 6,000. How long is there from creation to the day of the Lord? 6,000 years. <coughs> Just a possibility. Okay. Now let's go to Numbers chapter 29. Numbers chapter 29. Start in verse 1. No, instead of starting verse 7. I'm, we'll start in verse 7 instead. I'm looking at the clock going, well, maybe I don't have to read every verse. Verse 7 says, on the tenth day of the seventh month, that's today. You shall have a holy convocation, that is a day and a celebration that's set apart to rehearse something Messiah will do. You shall afflict your souls, there's the fast. You shall not do any work, that's why it's a high Sabbath. How many appointed times are there in Leviticus 23? Seven. How many high Sabbaths are there? Seven, but they're not exactly the same. Not every one of the Moedim is a high Sabbath. Some of them have two high Sabbaths. For instance, unleavened bread and the Feast of Tabernacles. Hmm. Why is not, do you suppose, the Feast of First Fruits a high Sabbath? Because that's the day Messiah arose. He rested in the grave through the two Sabbaths back to back. He wasn't going to rise on a Sabbath day. It was an appointed time, just not a Sabbath. Okay, back to Numbers 29, verse 8. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. A burnt offering is one that is completely consumed. You get nothing back. 
Normally when you did a sacrifice or an offering, you got the meat back, a large portion of it, to eat with your friends and family like a great barbecue. It was a good time. But a burnt offering is wholly consumed. You get nothing back. That's the one that most pictures Messiah because, well, he died, was buried, resurrected, and taken back up to heaven. One young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. How many lambs? Seven. How many times do they sprinkle the blood? Seven. You're going to see seven a lot. Be sure they are without blemish. That is tamim, right? Without spot or blemish. The grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram. And one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats is a sin offering besides the sin offering for atonement. That is the one that Aaron took care of. The regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. Now, that was looking historically way back to the days of Moses. Now let's go back to the time of Messiah. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. You can disagree if you like. Hebrews chapter 9. Start in verse 7. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 7. Almost there. Hebrews chapter 9. Comes after Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 7. Well, trying to be helpful. But into the second part, that is into the Holy of Holies. The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. What if he went without blood? He was a dead man. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. What about the sins that were committed deliberately? There was no sacrifice for them. Only for the ones committed in ignorance. What, was the res what did you have to do then if you had committed a deliberate sin? The only thing you could do was repent and beg for forgiveness. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, that's the Kodesh HaKodeshim, or the Holy of Holies, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time. So he's telling us that the Day of Atonement ceremonies in Leviticus 16 were to point us to Messiah. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. In other words, sacrifices of bulls and lambs and goats can't take away sin, only cover it over. Concern only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. We haven't reached that point yet. Here we are, verse 11. But Messiah came as high priest of the good things to come. So who had to do the Yom Kippur sacrifice and service by himself? The high priest. He was a picture of Messiah. Messiah is our high priest. 
Is he from the tribe of Levi? No, he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. That verse is critical. The Levitical priesthood was to take care of the priest's duties on earth in the earthly tabernacle, which was but a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. Messiah is the high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. He was from the tribe of Judah. He could not have acted as priest in the earthly temple. But the earthly temple was just a copy. He is the true high priest in heaven who put his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven, not the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. That's the holy of holies in heaven. You remember when God told Moses how to fashion the tabernacle, he said it is a model or picture of that which is in heaven. And he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Why did the high priest on earth have to do this year after year? Because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Why did Messiah have to do it just once? Because his blood is sufficient. So let's read on. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, talking about the red heifer, by the way, which is due to be slaughtered in what? Three weeks? Let's just wait and see. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? What's that without spot mean? He had no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Just read Isaiah 53 again. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Which means, by the way, once you have been saved by faith in Messiah and his blood has covered over your sins, it's time to stop obsessing about them. Let them go. Let them go. The blood of bulls and goats, nah, you were still conscious and guilty. But once you've been forgiven of Messiah, you've repented, you've turned away, you're not going to sin like that again. Let it go. What does Satan want to do? He wants you to obsess about your sin to make you know heavenly good. Yeah. Verse 14, of how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works are all those things you did which were worth nothing. Before you got saved, how much good did you think you did? Not so much. And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant. But which word new is this? Whenever you see new covenant, is it neos or kainos? It's kainos. It's the renewed covenant. It's the covenant that was offered again. It was offered at Mount Sinai and the people broke it. And through Messiah's shed blood, God offers it again. Who would like to be my people and let me be their God? So by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. In other words, it's only Messiah's death that takes away sin. The animal sacrifices didn't do that. 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is that eternal inheritance? Eternal life. For where there is a testament, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. Go down to verse 22. And according to the Torah, almost all things are purified or cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's where the Jewish rabbis assembled at Yavne had a problem. There was no more temple. The Romans had destroyed it. You can only sacrifice at the temple, so there can't be any more shedding of blood. And they rejected Messiah and his blood. They said, what are we going to do? Their answer is, we simply will have to save ourselves through good works. How many of you think that's ever going to work? Not at all. Verse 23. The been trying that from the beginning. Yeah, never did work. Never will. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens, so the copies are on earth, the real things are in heaven, should be purified with these, that is the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That verse sets aside the claims of a certain archaeologist whose name I will not use, who said when he was um, investigating Golgotha where Messiah was crucified, he fell through a hole in the ground and found that directly below the place where Messiah was crucified was the Ark of the Covenant that Messiah's blood had come and covered all over. And once he climbed out of the hole, the hole was gone, and, well, he could never get back to it or find it again. What does the Bible say? Did Messiah's blood go on the copies here on earth? It says it did not. So immediately I have to say we can discount those claims. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often, that is, every year, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, that's at Yom Kippur. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. That verse makes tears come to my eyes. I wish it said, so Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of all. Why does it say many and not all? Because not all will accept him. Not all will accept him. To those who eagerly wait for him. Is that you? Are you waiting for Messiah's return? For him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Oddly enough, it doesn't say that he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation for everyone, whether they wait for him eagerly or not, does it? That gives us an incentive to eagerly wait, which means to eagerly look forward to Messiah's return to catch us up as the bride. 
We already looked at John chapter 20, but let's go look at it again. John chapter 20. John wrote 30 years after all the other apostles were dead. And the church was starting to go off the rails. And he was trying to put the train back on its track. John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Through verse 18. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Yeshua had lain. Why were those two angels sitting like they were? What would she have seen if she looked in the tomb otherwise? Nothing. It would be black as sackcloth. They didn't have street lights, right? No flashlights. No flashlights either. But the angels glowing, one's at the head, one's at the feet, she can see that Messiah's body is not there. How could she know? Because the wrappings of linen around the body would have cocooned. But remember, the face cloth is lying separately. You can see there's no body in the cloths. What did they use for the face cloth back in the first century? The tallit. So Messiah's tallit was laying there by itself folded. Every Jewish man folds his tallit uniquely. They lived with Messiah for three and a half years. What did they notice about the way his tallit was folded? That he folded it. Verse 13. Then he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She can see the body is not there, so she assumes somebody took it and moved it somewhere else. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Yeshua standing there, but did not know that it was Yeshua. Well, it's very dark. Yeshua said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Yeshua said to her, Mary... At that point, she recognizes the voice, right? Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. She turned and said to him, Rabboni. Notice she wasn't facing him before. It's dark and she's not facing that direction. Rabboni, which is to say teacher. That's out of the Aramaic. She really said rabbi. But that's another story for another day. Yeshua said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Why does he have to ascend to heaven before he can be touched? He has not yet put the blood on the mercy seat in heaven. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. Now let's turn to the prophetic. What will the day of atonement be in the future? First, let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 associates the day of the Lord and the tribulation period to the feasts and festivals of Leviticus 23, those appointed times. The beginning of the day of the Lord is in Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, or Zion, it means prophetic Jerusalem. 
and sound an alarm in my holy mountains. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it's at hand. Referring to the tribulation period is about to start. And in verses 2 through 14 are the tribulation period unfolding and the great judgments that fall and the disasters. Look at verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. Do you remember those words from Matthew 24? Yeah. Verse 15, we've come to the end of the tribulation period. It's time for Messiah to return in Revelation 19.11. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Well, wait a minute, that's what it said in verse 1. Yeah, but verse 1 was the last trumpet. In verse 15, it's the shofar hagadol. How do we know? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. The fast is Yom Kippur. Which trumpet sounds at Yom Kippur? According to Matthew 24, the great trumpet, the shofar hagadol. Call a sacred assembly. What's that? That's an assembly set apart to rehearse what God's going to do through Messiah and his second coming. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom, that's Messiah, go out from his chamber, that's the wedding chamber, described in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 and following. And the bride, that's us, the raptured and resurrected saints from the dressing room, returning with Messiah for Armageddon, Revelation 19.11. Let's go next to Matthew 24 to take another look at what the Lord's words were and how they relate to this. What is teshuva? Teshuva means repentance. There's a 40-day period that starts on the first day of Elul and it ends on what day? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. If you have not repented by today, it's too late. And that's what happens in Matthew chapter 24. Let's look at verses 29 to 31 again. I know we did earlier. I'm getting Alzheimer's, I think, but I'm not there yet entirely. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's what unfolded in Joel chapter 2. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. You remember those words. We just looked at them. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Yes, that happens during the tribulation period. Satan and his angels get kicked out of heaven. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It's at the end of the tribulation period. Revelation 19.11 All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, the shofar hagadol. He will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's just a way to describe the four points of the compass. Yeah, we won't chase that ibex any farther. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Why is he called the Son of Man? How are we supposed to know about this coming on the clouds? Where was that prophesied? It says in Amos 3.7, As surely the Lord our God does nothing unless he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. Well, let's go look. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 
And Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 talk about the rapture and the resurrection, the events of Revelation chapter 4, Isaiah 26, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, etc. But we need to start in verse 11. Daniel 7, 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. The horn is the false messiah, antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13, whichever term you prefer. Those pompous words are talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I watched till the beast was slain. That's in Revelation chapter 19 when Messiah returns. His body destroyed and given to the burning flame. He and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. So they die when Messiah returns. He immediately resurrects them and casts them in their immortal bodies into the lake of fire where they get to burn by themselves for a thousand years before the great white throne judgment. What an honor. They can pick out the best beach places in the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. The rest of the beasts refer to the Gentile kingdoms that ruled over the earth. Messiah is now going to rule and reign forever. It says, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man. You saw that term in Matthew 24. Coming with the clouds of heaven. That's where that illustration comes from. It's right here. He came to the ancient of days. They brought him near before him. And him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed, referring back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Hmm. This is fulfilled on the Day of Atonement. Let's go to Revelation 19 and read about it. Keep saying Revelation 19. Let's go look. We have a few minutes yet. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's not the first white horse we've seen in Revelation. We saw one in chapter 6, but who rode that white horse? The false Messiah. This is the true Messiah. How do I know? And he who sat him was called faithful and true. That's from Isaiah eleven four. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire pictures judgment. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe. Talking about his tallit. That had been his face cloth at his burial. What do you know about head wounds? They bleed profusely. He returns with the blood he shed for you and me at Calvary. And his name is called the Word of God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the armies in heaven, that's you and me, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed in white horses. That word armies in Hebrew is Zavaot. Across the Old Testament, you see many, many places. Adonai Zavaot, the Lord of hosts, refers to Messiah leading these armies of heaven. And we get white horses too. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. We know that's the word of God. That with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, many, many verses in the Old Testament. 
himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Boy, that's Isaiah 63, isn't it? And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Look at that, he's got a tattoo. No, he doesn't have a tattoo. Tattoos are forbidden. But where do the seat, which contain the name of God, fall upon the body? They fall across the thigh. The seat are tied in a particular way to indicate the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God that we call the Torah. But the knots also spell out the name of God, yod heh the Tetragrammaton. King of kings, Lord of lords. If you read Isaiah 2, his kingdom is over all kingdoms of the earth. They are all subservient to him. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. All the rabbis laughed at us for a thousand years over this because there were no carnivorous birds in Israel. Not until 1967, when suddenly they started flocking into the Golan Heights on a mountain called Gamla, and now they're there by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, just preparing for this great supper of the great God. That you meet the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of heroes, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the false messiah, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's Psalm 2. That's the nations dreaming up this vain thing that they're going to be able to stop Messiah from coming. Is God afraid? No, he laughs and holds him in derision. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. Both those are described in Revelation 13 who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That's what we just read about, isn't it? Book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Hmm. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Wayne, are you trying to tell me I should still be repenting? Yes, you should be repenting harder today than at any other time in the year. Should this be the time that the books are closed, you want to make sure you're written in the book of life. That's why we say it, Rosh Hashanah, may you be inscribed for a good year. Jewish theology says the names are inscribed in the books at the Feast of Trumpets, but that that judgment is not sealed until Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That people still have an opportunity to repent until those books are sealed and closed, and that's it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Remember I talked about the shiny blood-colored cloth on the, the goat that was La'azazel, how it would turn white? Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's shiny, that's the blood color. They shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God will forgive you and grant you atonement. Until Messiah comes, he's come already, 
and then the sins can be taken away. But what must you do? You must repent. You cannot just mouth the words of repentance and continue in your sin. How do we know that? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 for one. But the next place we want to go is Isaiah chapter 27. Oh, I like chapter 27. Of course, I like them all, so that's nothing unusual. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13. Isaiah 27 is all about that day. What day? The day of the Lord. Verse 13, so it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. That's the shofar hagadol, and it's blown on the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. To survive the tribulation period will be by the grace and mercy of God. And they will rejoice when they hear that great trumpet sound because they know Armageddon is at hand. False Messiah and his false prophet are defeated and cast into the lake of fire. Messiah will now come onto the temple mount five days later and sit down. And they will be able to come into the kingdom. So when they hear that great trumpet, they're going to be so relieved that the great tribulation has come to an end. Look also at Isaiah chapter 66, which is about the second coming of Messiah. The technical term for the study of these end times events is eschatology, but who cares? Let's just go read about it. Isaiah 66, uh oh, verses 14 to 17. This describes Armageddon. 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, When you see this, that is when you see God coming to defend Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice, that's talking to the believers, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, his deliverance, his blessing, shall be known to his servants. And his indignation, that's the Hebrew word za'am, the same one used in Isaiah 26, to his enemies. So there's only two categories. Are you serving the Lord or are you his enemy? Because Deuteronomy 8 verse 11 says, if you do not keep God's commandments, what have you done? You have forgotten him. You've forsaken him. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come with fire. That's Revelation 19.11. With his chariots like a whirlwind, which talks about the speed and how nobody can stand before it. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Fire's judgment. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge who? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. That's idolatry. What happens if you take the mark of the beast and you worship him? That's idolatry. You die. Eating swine's flesh. That's the ham sandwich. Bacon. Sausage. 
and the abomination that's all the other unclean foods of Leviticus chapter 11 which God says if you eat them you are abominable in his sight and the mouse that is the rodents how do you realize that squirrels are rodents yeah yeah tree rat says they shall be consumed together says the Lord consumed together remember those birds of Revelation 19 eating the flesh of those who die yep that's them let's go to the book of Zechariah Zechariah also describes the day of atonement Zechariah chapter 14 Verses 1 and 2 describe the beginning of the tribulation period. But verse 3 starts talking about the end of it. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Revelation 19, 11 and following. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And you guys all know why he's going to split that mountain. Because Solomon the Magnificent, the Ottoman Turk ruler, put a graveyard in front of the eastern gate. Saying Messiah, being an Orthodox Jew, won't walk through that. Well, half of that graveyard's going north and half of it's going south. And he's coming in. Look at verse 5. You shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. That's where they would take the scapegoat. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come. What's Messiah Yeshua called here? The Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. Saints, Revelation 14, 12, they are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. This is the rapture and resurrected saints returning with Messiah. 1911 and following. Yep. Verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. That there will be no light. The lights will diminish. Remember we saw that in Joel. We saw that in Matthew. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Not an afterthought. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. I love what the sages of Israel say about that verse. They say that word light refers to the light of salvation. That that is the point where salvation comes to all the earth. Verse 12 now talks about Messiah's return. When he speaks the word and people die, that's verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. That's at Yom Kippur at the Battle of Armageddon. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Hmm. I don't want to be there. Do you? No, uh-uh. I'm taking the first flight out. Yeah, me too. So application, whoops, we're out of time. We don't have time for the application. Okay, I'll go for a couple more minutes because you guys can't eat lunch anyway. So, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 18. 
Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 18. This we call the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer. What does it have to do with the Lord's return? Well, let's see. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, Avinu Hashbashmayim, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. When does Messiah return? Yeah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Who's the evil one? Asatan. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So on this day of atonement, as you are pouring out your heart to God, as I hope you all will do today, confessing any remaining sins, repenting of them, remember that if you won't forgive others, God won't forgive you either. Verse 15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, what day are we talking about? Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. Oh, look at me, I'm suffering. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. And surely I say to you, they have their reward. If what you're doing for the Lord is to be patted on the back by those around you to say, oh, look how, how righteous you are, then you have your reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who's in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So is that not good advice for today? It is. And just write down these other verses because people are starting to leave. Mark chapter 11. You know what? It's only two verses. Mark chapter 11. Verses 25 and 26. Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The importance of these two verses is do you only forgive those who come and ask for your forgiveness? Or do you be like Messiah who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they were pounding nails into his body. Do you think they were begging for forgiveness as they pounded those nails? No. So today of all days, if you have anyone who has offended you, forgive them. And Luke 6, just two verses. Luke 6, verses 36 to 38. I guess that's three verses. Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 38. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. 
with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. The more forgiving you are, the more loving you are, the more forgiveness God will put in your sack. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Verses 21 through 25. 35. 21 to 35. Just put that in your notes. And the essence of it is this. Peter said, should I forgive my brother, oh, I don't know, seven times? And what did the Lord say? Seven times seven. And let's close with 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The brain cannot absorb more than the derriere can withstand. So we got to get close. In. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let us close in prayer.